All right, welcome back to Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have a return of David Livingston Smith. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of New England in Bitford, Maine. He earned his PhD from the University of London King's College, where he worked on Freud's philosophy of mind and psychology. His current research is focused on dehumanization, race, propaganda, and related topics. His books include On Inhumanity, Less Than Human, and his newest book, coming out soon, is called Making Monsters, The Uncanny Power of Dehumanization. Welcome back, David. Thank you for having me back. Absolutely. And so, David, your book starts out in a pretty horrifying, but obviously a really enlightening way. So you talk about the stories of Henry Smith and Sam Holmes. And so what I really appreciated about that is that, you know, kind of like when well, we were used to sort of reading philosophy and psychology, right? We're used to sort of the book starting out with concepts and sort of how to figure out what these things mean, what they don't mean. But, you know, we kind of sometimes forget about the human side of things. So we actually, and then, you know, we agreed on this before the show that we wanted to focus more so on how humanization or dehumanization is manifest. So, David, can you start off with the story that you pretty much told in your book in the beginning? The two stories, right? The sure. ones about yeah, Henry Smith and Sam Holmes. Sure. So, uh, the, the stories that I, I tell are stories of what are known as spectacle lynchings. Um, most Americans, certainly most white Americans, I can't speak for others, have a, a, a kind of a cleaned up version of what lynching is or right. what it was. And ideas they get from the movies and from TV and so on. And that involves the, you know, a scene where half a dozen guys in Ku Klux Klan robes grab a black man and hang him from a tree. But lynching was almost always way more grotesque than that, way, way more horrific than that. And I, it's very important, I think, for that sort of story to be told, to give people a picture of the legacy of our racial history. Uh, now, I said these are spectacle lynchings. Spectacle lynchings were public lynchings. They were often widely advertised. In the 20th century, they were advertised on radio. So crazy. Yeah. And, yeah, that's uh, so horrifying, man. Like, I can't I even know. imagine something like that happening. Like, hey, yeah, come to this lynching today. Yeah, that's right. Not when, not only that, but railway com railroad companies would lay on extra trains to transport visitors. There were professional photographers taking pictures of the torture of human beings as souvenirs. It was really, really horrible. And the crowds, men, women, and children, could number in the in the many thousands. Some of these lynchings, ten or fifteen thousand people attended as spectators. So uh, the, the first of these that we know about uh, is the lynching of Henry Smith. Henry Smith was a farm worker, a black farm worker in, uh, in Waco, Texas. And he was accused of murdering and raping the little daughter of the local sheriff. He was certainly, by the way, a mentally disabled man. Mm -hmm. So he was, he fled, he was captured in Arkansas. They brought him back on a train. I would imagine he was being tortured on the train to try and get a confession out of him. And then the horror began. So first Henry Smith was paraded around the city where different reports, but were gathered. Um, on a float, like a carnival float. He was dressed as a king with a crown and a scepter, a, a deeply humiliating exercise. Then he was taken to a platform just outside of town because there are too many people. The town could not accommodate all these people. And when he was placed on this platform, then he was tortured. Red hot irons were applied to his flesh. His eyes were burned out. Um, and this was large at the hands of the relatives of the murdered child. And then he was burned to death. And this was quite typical. So these lynchings, which were often referred to as barbecues, involved the burning to death of the victim after torture, often castration as well. Sometimes just by the way, they were forced to eat their own body parts, which were cut off. Now this is 1893. 
in 1899, Sam Hose was, uh, was lynched as well in a spectacle. Hose was accused of killing his, um, his employer, uh, raping his employer's wife and harming the children. Hose was very probably innocent, by the way. Um, he was, like Henry Smith, he was captured eventually. He was taken by a mob towards the scene of the alleged crime, but <laughs> a, a train pulled up and the mob thought that it might be federal troops trying to prevent the lynching. Mm -hmm. And so they quickly lynched him before getting to the particular farm where the alleged crime took place, or rather, I mean, it was a crime, but it was allegedly he that committed it. Sure. Um, he was, he had his, his skin stripped from his body he had his penis cut off. He had his fingers cut off. And after this torture, he was slowly burned to death. The burnings were like, really like the witch burnings of centuries past. You know, these were executed with a great deal of skill so that the, the, the victim would be burned from the feet up very slowly. So they would not, so it would maximize the agony and prevent them from dying of asphyxiation. In both cases, after the victim was dead, crowds moved in to collect souvenirs, uh, bits of bone, body parts, and, and so on. These were cherished souvenirs. So that, those are the two stories I, I start with. And you know, I use those, say, well, if this doesn't involve dehumanization, nothing does. Uh, so, if we're going to decide on what dehumanization is, it's got to be compatible with these atrocities. What's going in the, on in the mind of these um, accusers? Uh, it's actually a two-part right. question, but I guess I want to start with the, the yeah. accusers um, as opposed to the crowd. Who yeah, and can, I, can I just add to that too? And yeah. just to, like, obviously like, that's the important Please. question, right? But even just to kind of, as a prelude to that question, you know, we always kind of talk about like what life would have been like had we been in Nazi Germany, right? We think like, oh, let's say I wouldn't have been that person. But that's such a different question from, you know, whether I would have been the person to have, let's say, been an, either a Nazi sympathizer or a collaborator, as opposed to would I have literally been one of these people to not only pick apart the flesh and bone of this person, but then try to sell it and even be one of the people who try to buy it. Just to add on yeah. to that very quickly, um, the, yeah, the reason why I was asking what's going on in the mind, not just of the accusers, but of the people who are sort of complicit in participating in um, attending the lynchings or, or picking up um, mm -hmm. these body parts, uh, is it, do they think that they're, they're in the right you know, like that these people are, are, are less than, and so, or they're criminals. So I, I, you know, I'm justified. It's not wrong what I'm doing. Right. And, and that's why I wanted to, to ask. Yep. Yeah. So uh, with regard to the first question, of course, we don't know. <laughs> right. We have the good fortune not to have been born into those specific circumstances. But if you had been born into those circumstances and socialized in the way these people were socialized, and if you had acquired the beliefs that they had, that black males are vicious, bestial predators, uh, you might well have joined in, in in this. We just don't know, as you might have in Nazi Germany as well. You know, uh, it's it's easy for us to sit back with the warm glow of righteousness. And say, I, you know, I wouldn't do that. And in effect, what you're doing when you do that is you're characterizing those who commit these atrocities as radically different from yourself. In fact, you're dehumanizing them. You're seeing them as monstrous, demonic, evil, horrible beings. And that's not realistic. Um, and as soon as we make that move, we're preventing ourselves from really coming to grips with what's going on. And, and that's a really urgent matter because atrocities, of course, are not merely a thing of the past or a thing of the present and the future. Right. And, and by the way, and also clinically, we can't label everybody as narcissistic or with antisocial personality disorder either, because that wouldn't make sense. That, that's right. And, and yeah. you know, the diagnostic labels are 
I think um, I used to be a psychotherapist in my in my early days. I think they're very often uh, misleading. So we we think of something as morally wrong, and we give it a a, a medical sounding term, right? Right. Um, but it's it's a moral often a moral condemnation in in disguise. Mm. So. Um, you know, the, the, the other question, did they think they were doing something right or at least not wrong? Yeah. Yeah, that's quite clear. When Henry Smith was being tortured, there was a big sign on the platform where he was being tortured, and it read justice. Right. In fact, if you look at the most egregious, the most hideous examples of human atrocity, uh, on a mass scale, almost without exception, the perpetrators think they're saving the world, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're, they're combating evil. This goes for the, uh, the lynch mobs of the 19th and 20th century. It goes for the Third Reich in Germany. We find it again and again and again and again. Right. And then so when we're thinking about the psyches and what exactly they were experiencing, is it possible that maybe that was ad hoc reasoning, that it was sort of just an excuse for their sadism to say, well, this is just and, you know, we're doing something that's, you know, globally, uh, let's say, conducive to global health or whatever, or at least communal health at the time? I mean, that would be kind of reassuring, but I, I, I'm, I doubt it. OK. Right. So invoking things like. Sadism. My computer keeps sending a little message to me here. It's rather irritating. Um, <laughs> doesn't explain anything. Mm -hmm. um, so th these are people, these aren't just ordinary people, <laughs> you know. These are people who probably love their children and, and, uh, and went to church and sincerely and so on and so forth. These are ordinary people. In fact, my research suggests that um, obstacles have to be overcome, psychological obstacles have to be overcome, usually, uh, for people to be capable of these acts. And that's the connection with dehumanization, mm -hmm. right? So we are, I don't think we are by nature, most of us, prone to, to inflict such cruelty on, on one another. I think for most of us, it goes the opposite direction. We have very strong inhibitions against doing these things. Uh, but we are also able to subvert those inhibitions in various ways. And I think that's what happens here. So it's not like the beast within comes out. Mm -hmm. It's rather more like uh, people are culturally engineered and culturally engineer themselves to be capable of these unimaginably horrific acts. Right, and then why, right? Why would somebody then want to do that? Well, now there are, there's, there's that, that's a very complicated story. Right. So part of the story is historical and part of it is psychological. And by the way, this is like one of the big challenges for making sense of this domain. You can't come at it from just one angle. Like if you're only psychological about it, it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. If you're only historical or political about it, it doesn't make any sense. What we have to look at is how these things mesh, how these social forces, uh, how, rather how our psyches give purchase to social forces, how we are vulnerable to certain kinds of social forces. Right that result in us doing terrible things. So the way I like to put it, look, it's important to think about what's in our heads, but it's also think, important to think about what our heads are in. Right. right, so here, what do we have? We have the these most horrific actions in the United States came after the, um, the Civil War and really, primarily after the collapse of Reconstruction, when federal troops left the South. The South's economy was in tatters. They no longer had all this free labor. Mm -hmm. 
right? You, you have to understand that the South was incredibly wealthy. Mm -hmm. The state of Mississippi had more millionaires per square mile than anywhere else in the world. In fact, the Confederate States in around about 1850, so the future Confederate States, had the third largest economy in the world. Wow. And it was not confined to them because, of course, the industrial North relied on the production of cotton, uh, which made the South rich and, and so on. So it was not like just a Southern thing. It was, mm -hmm. part, it was part of a whole system, economic system. Yep. So, what, so what happened then is Americans found ways to re-enslave uh, African-Americans to get that chief labor back. Um, so one way was sharecropping. So you, you allowed a black family to farm your land. You provided food and seeds and so on. And they got a share of the crop. But it, it was structured in such a way as they were constantly kept in debt. Mm -hmm. Right. And and so they were, in, in effect, enslaved and they could not leave. They were prisoners mm -hmm. on, on the land. Another way was uh, convict leasing. So there were laws put into effect throughout the South, specifically targeting African-Americans, which allowed them to be arrested and then sold to industry as laborers. And the conditions there were far worse than the conditions of slavery. After all, enslaved people had value, had economic value. Mm -hmm. It wasn't in a slaveholder's interest to, to kill them, to work them to death. But convict leasing was so cheap that you could work people to death, and that's what, what happened, thousands. Uh, the lynching thing was part of the same phenomenon it was a way of intimidating and threatening African-Americans to keep them in their place, to keep them exploitable, right? So that's part of the story. But it's, it's wrong, I think, to see it as some kind of deliberate strategy. It's something that kind of happened. So um, people, certain beliefs about Black people gained currency beliefs in their intrinsic inferiority, beliefs in their violent nature, um, uh, beliefs that black men were, were, uh, were rapists and rapacious beasts and so on. People sincerely believe these things, right? It wasn't mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, we'll just say that as an excuse. They sincerely believed it. Right. And that's, that's, it's, the, it's the sincerity of these beliefs that empowered the unbelievable atrocities that were that were that were committed, and plus there's the Overton window, right? The the set of acceptable things that are allowed to be said um, socially mm -hmm. uh, around a given topic. So yeah. I'm sure if anyone even had divergent thought from that, anything that wasn't you know uh, horrible in nature about um, black people, African Americans. Um, I'm sure it, they would look crazy to their peers. And so they oh, would yeah. be less likely to say things like that. Right. And so it kind of kept the same yeah. level of thought circulating. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. There, was, there was something, I don't, uh, it's not quite a consensus, but something going in that direction in yeah. certain areas of the country. Yeah. Yeah. And wouldn't all of these, though, be forms of motivated reasoning where it's to say that, yes, there's a strong belief in, you know, X, Y, and Z, but the idea is that they kind of benefited. They had sort of emotional, financial, absolutely, uh, yeah, institutional yeah. payoffs, right, for yeah. believing yeah. some of these things, right, right. So the idea I think there is, is that you'd say, yes, we believe these things, but we also have enough incentive not to challenge them or exploit them too thoroughly. Sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. And, and to, to just to make this a little more, um, uh, understandable. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a truism in philosophy that most of the things that we think we know, most of the things we believe we get from others. Right. And that's very important for human life. We get it from books, or we get it from people who we regard as credible authorities, and so on. And, and this is true, even if what they tell us defies what our senses tell us. 
Mm. So, you know, the table in front of you looks like it doesn't have any gaps, but the physicist tells you, no, nah, it's mostly empty space. And you accept that, I hope. Why do you accept that? Even though it, you know, it just contradicts what your eyes tell you. Well, because the physicist is the one who's supposed to know. Mm -hmm. So now imagine yourself growing up in this environment where everyone that you respect, everyone in positions of authority, from your parents to the pastor, to the sheriff, and to the distinguished academics who wrote books on race science, if you, know, if you were an educated person, they're all telling you the same story. Well, of course you're going to believe that. Of course you are. And it's entirely reasonable for you to believe that, even though it's false. Yeah. You see, the, 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 this feature of the way we acquire beliefs and knowledge, it, it's built on a kind of trust. And that trust makes us vulnerable. We can be led astray, you know. If back in the day we regarded, say, Rush Limbaugh as a credible authority and we trust his pronouncements, then we are really, really, really vulnerable to be led astray. Oh, wow. And then so just going in and touching on the concept of dehumanization, how does it occur? How does a person sort of see a person, right, as both one thing and then at the same time another? It's very sort of a kind of fundamentalist like. But yeah. I should bring this up at some point, but I know in, in this book you make a, a distinction um, that's a little bit different than what you had in um, Less Than Human, mm -hmm. where um, so before it was either someone was seen as wholly human or a subhuman, but yeah. um, you make the case that it can be both, and yeah. I was hoping we could uh, get into that as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I can I can kind of put the two together. Um, so, first of all, what is dehumanization? Um, well, everyone and their uncle means something different by the word. There are lots and lots and lots of conceptions, and it's not like one is right and one is wrong. They're just different. Uh, so if you're talking about dehumanization and you're trying, like I've been for the last 15 years ago, trying to understand it, you have to specify what the it is that you're trying to understand. Mm -hmm. uh, so in my view, dehumanization, to dehumanize others is to conceive of them as less than human creatures. I say the word creature very deliberately because I don't want to restrict it to animals, as we'll see in a second. So. That's kind of weird, right? Like, how does that work? How can that work? You look at me and everything that you see tells you this is a human being, right? A member of your species, homo sapiens. Yeah. Um, so how could you think of me as really something else? Well, there, there are two components to this at least at first, and then we get to some other wrinkles, mm -hmm. right? One is what psychologists call psychological essentialism. Mm -hmm. So this was something that psychologists started investigating 1989, and there's a very, very robust literature around it. Basically, the idea is human beings have this tendency to think of the natural world, the world of living things, as divided into distinct kinds like biological species. And what makes any individual belong to one of those species is something deep and unobservable about them, which they call the essence. So in other words, you know, if, if, if my dog were to come into the room, if you're thinking essentialistically, as we all tend to do if we're not watching ourselves, by the way, it's a very, very, widely distributed and robust disposition. Um, you would make sense of her being a dog by attributing to her some kind of inner dogginess. Not, it's the way she looks gives you kind of, you could read that off from how she looks, but you know, a dog may not look like a typical dog, but still be a dog, <laughs> right? It might not have four legs. It might not bark. It might not have fur. It might not wag its tail, but still be a dog. And the idea is, and this is just ordinary ways of thinking. Children do it. It's a cross-cultural phenomenon. There's something on the inside. That's what counts. And so with respect to human beings, then, it's the same. What makes someone a human being? Well, it's not how they look. 
That's just a sort of a symptom. It's what they are inside. And in the past, this was associated with ideas of the human soul, right? If you had a human soul, you're human, no matter what you look like and so on. Okay, now, so there's a kind of a gap in the essentialist way of thinking about things between the kind of being an individual is and how they appear. And that gap gets exploited in dehumanizing thinking. So in other words, I might look human for sure. Now, let's say I'm a, a black man in the 1893. Oh, I look human, I look human for sure. But you are free to posit that although I look human, I'm not really human inside, on the inside where it matters. There's something else going on there, something more animalistic, something more dangerous. Right, so that's that's part of it. I mean, that deals with a lot of the weirdness of of dehumanization. When we dehumanize others, we think of them, so to speak, as counterfeit humans, mm -hmm. as looking like the genuine article, but not really being the genuine article. Now, the other component here is hierarchical thinking. Human beings also have a tendency to think of the world in terms of hierarchy, hierarchy of perfection, higher and lower. So in the Middle Ages, this was made quite explicit. You know, So God's at the top of the hierarchy because God is supremely valuable and perfect. And then archangels, angels, we modestly placed ourselves just beneath the angels. And then all the other creatures, lower, 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 lower down. So those are by definition then in a hierarchical scheme, subhuman, yep. right? They're lower than the human on the scale. Now, I think historians of ideas make a big mistake about this. They think it died out. It hasn't died out at all. It's part of our, part of our psychology. You know, if, if there's a fly buzzing around in your room there and you were to swat it and I were to say, how could you bring yourself to take that fly's life? What are you gonna say? It's just a fly. It's just a fly. It's low down on the hierarchy. So this is still very much with us. So then the, if we combine these two elements, we get, when we dehumanize others, we attribute to them the essence of a creature that's lower on the hierarchy than the human, irrespective of how they look. Now, yeah, go on. What would some of them, the telltale signs be? Like, how would you know, right? So like, let's say if I see Alan, right? And let's say I'm one of these people who would like tend to dehumanize. How would I be able to tell that Alan is something other than what he looks like? Well, you can't tell, uh, right? <laughs> so you brought up motivated reason a little mm -hmm. while ago. So what gets us to um, think that way? Well, it's propaganda, basically. This doesn't come from the inside. It comes from the outside. Right. Right. So, you know, if if Dr. Goebbels were to tell you that all Jews are subhuman and wow, you know, he's an authority. That's where you get it from. Now, you might want to examine the pedigree of your buddy there, mm -hmm. because part of dehumanizing thinking is the idea that it's transmitted by descent mm -hmm. or do, do her, either of his parents belong to a group regarded as subhuman? Well, then he's subhuman. Yeah. Well, and it's so horrifying because the idea there is that even, let's say there's usually at least some pretense to science, but in this case, it's pretty much just authority figures kind of like, not only obviously propagating, which we said, but it's also like passing down these beliefs that it doesn't seem like anybody really ever questions. Yeah, well, I, th I think it's actually stronger than a pretense to science. So if we look at historical examples, um, eight, let's, let's go back uh, two steps to 1850. Mm -hmm. Book was written in 1850 called Types of Mankind. It was the big bestseller on race in the United States. It went through loads of editions very quickly. And it was authored by a group of people who were the most distinguished scholars in their field, medical science, biology, Egyptology, and so on. They asserted that black people and white people are literally different species. Right. And they're using species in the sense that we use species now. They didn't just mean varieties, they meant 
species. Now, hierarchy. Uh, well, they were different, and there was a hierarchical relation. You, in when people talk about race, they talk about difference. There's always hierarchies in the background, right? right? So these were scientists, and uh, they were scientists. Their scientific um, status gave them credibility. Mm -hmm. Similarly, in the Third Reich, um, the Nazi race scientists, they were scientists. <laughs> they really were. And that's what gave them their authority. They thought, all these people thought they were making sound arguments. Again, they weren't tackling villains, you know, <laughs> like that. They, they believed this stuff. And they encouraged other people to believe it. Um, so there, there was... It would be wrong to say a pretense of science. These folks were, by their own lights, doing science. Science isn't always correct. Scientific claims are not always true. Right. And so it just, I guess I want to kind of distinguish, but I think it's important to obviously also piece it together in terms of what we found in the U.S. as it pertains to, let's say, African-Americans and what we found in Nazi Germany as it pertains to Jewish people. What are we then talking about? What would that scientific evidence be for how any of these folks are less than human? Uh, what counts as evidence is extraordinarily malleable, <laughs> right? And let's take... Uh, I mean, we could do this with either case, but let's let's take the, the Nazi case. And just because many of the details are fresher in my mind, I have a whole chapter in the forthcoming book on this case. So Nazi beliefs about Jews had very, very, very deep roots. Right. Going back, uh, well, going back to early Christianity, actually, uh, where in the Gospel of John, the Jews who will not accept Jesus as the Messiah, which is, of course, blasphemous for religious Jews, are described as sons of Satan. Um, so when we get up to the 12th, 13th, 14th century, we have extremely, extremely toxic images of Jews which emerge and which pervade the society so much that they're kind of taken for granted. They're like the, uh, the, a foundation or a platform that everyone just accepts. It becomes common knowledge, right? These beliefs, images, and so on, for instance, that Jews have horns, um, that they uh, are carriers of deadly diseases, um, that they kidnap Christian children and vampirize them, mixing their blood with the matzah meal. Um, these were all, these all, once these things get established to that degree, they're very, very hard to get rid of. So in the late 19th century, and more particularly in the early 20th century, post-World War I, when there's an upswing in political anti-Semitism, all of these old ideas are reignited. Mm -hmm. The Nazis weaponized a lot of them, right? So they're already there and they're taken for granted. Similar, and it worked that way with, with black people, right? The enslaved black people. These ideas were there in the background, right? They're like kindling. And all you need is a change in the social ecology to set them on fire. Um, and that's really problematic because these things are still with us. They're still, I, th I think it must take unbelievable lengths of time to extirpate them. And that's why we need to be super, super, super vigilant about um, the kind of propaganda that circulates, which touches on on these things. So I guess that's what I'm wanting to say to come back to your question really, is that when you have ideas that pervade a culture to that degree, they're just assumed. Right. So it's not like the race scientists are starting from scratch. They already have this cognitive bias right, right. about the victimized group. 
form. So is it that they were looking up or looking into some sort of correlations, like how we would see in stereotypes where let's say you can have a, like one stereotype would say, well, black people are less intelligent. Or if this were the 1800s, we would say, well, black people are, you know, immoral. So is it that they were starting from that foundation and looking for evidence of those correlations? Yeah, that's okay. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And 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 then I would assume that when we're talking about like these lynchings or uh, these fake kind of judicial proceedings, what people would do in that respect is they would say, oh, well, this is sort of exactly what we read in books. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Wow. So it's 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 confirming. Wow. Yeah. And uh, yeah, right. And it's and now going back into biases, that's literally confirmation bias. So it's like it's sort of it's like this beast that kind of builds up on itself. That's right. That's wow. right. And very, very difficult to constrain once it gets going. Right. And then so how is it then that people make sense or made sense of these contracts? Well, like, let's say not these because there's only one. But how do people make sense of that one contradiction where on the one hand, you could be both as sort of a monster, as you know, the title of your, of your book, and then you can also be a human. Is it through hierarchical thinking or is there something else? In well, the, the way people get turned into monsters is really the um, maybe the main innovation of this book mm -hmm. as compared to less than human. Although I gave some glimpses of it in on inhumanity from last year. Mm -hmm. Right, so, so here's the thing. Uh, I'm trying to think what end to start with. I'll start with something I haven't spoken about yet. So here's a fact about our species. We're super social. Mm -hmm. We are super, super, super social animals. Our lives depend on trust of one another. We're highly cooperative. Um, we live in large groups. And these, this cooperative sociality, we know it goes back very, very, very far. Right? So this is, this is you know, I usually don't like to bring evolution into my stories because I think it's very often vacuous. Uh, but here, yeah, we are, we're evolved to be <laughs> social primates. Right. And, and no other mammal comes anywhere near our degree of sociality. Yeah. Now, any social animal has to have inhibitions against violence, against members of the community, because you can't cooperate. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? If you're ripping each other's heads off, you can't cooperate. And we being super social must have very, very strong uh, inhibitions against acts of violence, especially lethal violence. Now, when in most species, it's members of the immediate community, but for us, our sociality extends beyond the local. I mean, this is an exemplification right here. Mm -hmm. um, I'm in New Hampshire. I don't know where you are. <laughs> Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, Brooklyn. Oh, that's where I was born. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we're pretty far away. Yeah. Um, so, so that's a fact about us. And we're exceedingly sensitive to the nuances of social interaction, just because we're built that way. We have social brains. Right. Um, but we also are like really clever and can think instrumentally. And we can think, oh, wouldn't it be great to get people to go and slaughter their neighbors there? <laughs> wouldn't that be advantageous? Wouldn't it be great if we could intimidate some oppressed group to such a degree that we could exploit their labor and so on. Right. Now, uh, if you think of it that way, there's a problem because on the one hand, there are these inhibitions against violence. So that's part of our <laughs> evolutionary heritage. On the other hand, people in authority, uh, or actually we, any of us, can recognize the practical benefits of doing harm to others. Right. So what happens there? Well, there are various gimmicks that we clever primates have developed to disable our inhibitions. Right. One, and one of them is dehumanizing rhetoric, dehumanizing propaganda. Right, and can Those I just are, make can yeah. I just make a quick distinction? So we're talking about in-group versus out-group, right? So we tend to be social and sort of, you know, the kind of the health of the group of the group that we find ourselves in. That's what seems to be prominent. But when it comes to sort of these uh, kind of dehumanizing tendencies and taking advantage and exploitation, that's kind of related to the out-group. Well, it's, perceived out -group. it is, but it's stronger than a normal out-group notion, right? right? So 
outgroup. You know, there are people who live down the road from me who would be social psychologists, which is part of my outgroup. But right. there's no, you know, I'm not, I'm not hostile to them. They're just right. not my people. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it's a I guess it's a it's a necessary condition that they be members of the outgroup. But it's important we create outgroups. Right. These are not like natural divisions yeah. in the world. We draw lines. And people that were once in the in-group can get extruded into an out-group, and people once in an out-group can be included into an in-group. Right. Okay, so Yosef Goebbels says, yeah, yeah, these Jews, they're not really human beings at all. They're, they're beasts, they're filthy beasts, they're vermin, and so on. And because it's Yosef Goebbels, and he's an authority, I take that on board. I say, yeah, God, it must be right. Even though my eyes don't tell me that, it must be right. Okay, now something really important happens. So get this picture. On the one hand, people who dehumanize others get convinced, either through explicit propaganda or through ideology, ideological beliefs just sedimented into a culture, or both, mm -hmm. that these others are less than human. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, because of our hypersocial nature, it's impossible for us not to respond to them as human beings, right? You look into their eyes, bang, automatic, modular, can't help it. And when, you know, there's a lot about in cognitive neuroscience about visual processing, how the side of a human face and human eyes is very, very special for us. And this, tension between, oh, I listen to Goebbels, they're subhuman. Uh, I listen to myself, they're human, mm -hmm. creates a very, very toxic situation. The way it works is this. When we dehumanize others, then we think of them as totally subhuman and totally human simultaneously. We are in a contradictory state of mind. The two mental pictures don't come into contact with each other. There's a, actually a wonderful discussion in Freud where he's talking about ambivalence and he's talking about these contradictory ideas. It's not like they're merged. It's just they're, they don't meet. Right, right. They don't meet. And this situation is a big part of what transforms the humanized people into monsters, not merely vermin, not merely predators, monsters in the eyes of those who dehumanize them. If you look at horror fiction, and here I draw, I've drawn a lot of work on, on the so-called uncanny valley and, and some work in anthropology and so on. But here I'll just stick with one little piece. Uh, the philosopher Noel Carroll Wrote, he, he wrote a book uh, called The Philosophy of Horror. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions he asks in there is, what, what makes a monster? <laughs> what, are the, what are the qualifications of a monster? A monster has to be physically dangerous. Right. But that doesn't differentiate a monster from a grizzly bear or, a, or a, someone speeding down the, the local road or whatever. Mm -hmm. Monster also has to be what he calls cognitively dangerous. What that means is the monster has to be a combination of incompatible components. Mm. They're impossible. So think of a zombie. Right, or a vampire, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. So a zombie is alive and dead at the same time. Right. That's one that that makes them way scarier mm -hmm. than they would otherwise be. As Carol says, look, they're tottering around. They look like a four-year-old could knock them over. Mm -hmm. There's something so disturbing about that. Or a werewolf is way scarier than a wolf. Mm -hmm. But why is that? Because it's human and it's wolf at the same time. Right. So now if we come back, this, this dehumanizing situation, where on one hand, we're seeing the other as human. On the other hand, we're seeing them as subhuman. Morphs them, transmutes them into something very frightening. And, sub and they are subjectively experienced then as very, very, very dangerous. 
The tragedy here is that it's usually the most vulnerable members of a population that are being seen as hugely threatening, dangerous beings. I mean, Jews, Jews in Germany and Poland, marginal group. Black people in the United States in the aftermath of the Civil War, marginal, both very vulnerable groups, but they're seen as overwhelmingly terrifying and dangerous and that they must be stopped at all costs. Right. Evil. And how come you think, what, maybe not how come, I guess the better question is, what would the mechanism behind something like that be? Because if we're thinking about minority groups, right, obviously, and so let's say any rational person, I'm assuming, Alan, you would agree, right, they don't pose a threat. So how is it that mentally speaking? God. So, I mean, this, I, I'm not an expert on this, but this is just my hunch. Um, because of that unresolved tension between human and subhuman and our uncomfortable our uncomfortability with ambiguity that's what creates that um that intense fear of yes um, that's what oh yeah <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's a big part of it we'll add just one bit so remember the monster has to be physically threatening as well as cognitively threatening or what i call metaphysically threatening mm -hmm. uh so when groups of people are oppressed this is before they're demonized when they're just oppressed Part of the justification is very, very often they're, they're physically dangerous, they're criminals, mm -hmm. right? Again, in both these paradigmatic cases, uh, black males in the United States and Jewish males in Nazi Germany, both were regarded as inherently criminal. Mm -hmm. So they're already seen as dangerous. That way of thinking, this, and it's a form of motivated reasoning, right? justifies their oppression. Now, if we add to that, this eerie, creepy, disturbing contradiction between human and subhuman, mm -hmm. then we get a monster, right? right? And, and you look at say, genocidal dehumanization. It's not the only form of dehumanization. You don't have to create monsters to dehumanize, but in the worst forms of dehumanization, the ones that result in mass atrocities. This is typically what happens. And it's, by the way, typically very gendered. It's, it's males that are the monsters. Uh, yeah, you get this in, in, the, in the very worst forms. Right. So then I guess in some sense, the ideas do meet in terms of what they actually create. And if, uh, unless you were saying, um, unless I guess the concept was that the ideas don't meet because let's say we wouldn't think about them too deeply, right? We wouldn't think of the inherent contradiction, but they do meet in the sense of they cultivate this image of the monster. Yeah, yes, okay. they, they meet in that sense. I, the way I like to think of it, there's this kind of psychological tension, mm -hmm. right? Because they're both in us uh, that gets manifested in regarding the other as a monster. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting if you look at the discourse, if you look at the way people who dehumanize talk, they're often flip-flopping from human to subhuman. Mm -hmm. like the contradiction can't be sustained in consciousness. So it's like a duck rabbit, right? It's either a rabbit or a duck. It's not both. It's either human or subhuman. It's not both, but both are doing their psychological work, irrespective of what's represented in the conscious mind. Yeah. And I mean, I guess that's not surprising because I mean, going just to the kind of concept of like fundamental fundamentals of Christianity and the idea that Jesus is both God and man, and somehow people can accept that. And I guess it's very similar here where the idea is like, even I guess if you don't think about it too deeply, you're just kind of like, yeah, this is just how it is. Yeah. And, and there is, by the way, a connection between dehumanization and certain kinds of religious imagery. They're differently empowered, as it were. So the demons and the gods, they have something in common. Right. Uh, that's something I want to work on at some point in the future. Right, because it's sort of reminiscent of the kind of Greek gods, right? Where the idea yeah. was, Zeus, yeah, Zeus was not fully human, but he was not fully a god either. That's right. Uh-huh. Well, he yeah. definitely was very human in his... Yeah, 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 in the tendencies, right? But then, but he wasn't human because he lived on Mount Olympus and he had yeah. you know, all these different powers. <laughs> he could transform himself into a swan and he could do all kinds of interesting things that human beings can't do.
Right. So interesting. And I bet you anything that sort of those people who would dehumanize, they would probably tell you that like any of that is absurd. Whether we're talking about Zeus or, you know, whatever, you know, Buddha or whatever, you mm-hmm. know, kind of gods you could think of. Oh, yeah, that's ridiculous. That, that's absurd. Right, right, right. So interesting. Yeah. And I was wondering uh, which kind of direction to head this, uh, head towards, because I have kind of two ideas here. But um, so I guess, so the people in um, Nazi Germany or in the South who were sort of, um, lulled into um, being complicit to um, dehumanization. And this is kind of a seed of a thought. We don't necessarily have to pursue this all the way. It's just a kind of food for thought. Do you think there are some ways that right now, today, that we're 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 doing some form of dehumanization and we're not kind of Oh, like it's something that it's not so overt that we're able to easily say like, okay, these actions are abhorrent, right? But but there's something that we're currently doing now or starting to do now that may be mm-hmm. going in that kind of direction. Right, like more subtle. Yeah. yeah, because, yeah, for example, with politics, let's say, uh, if somebody's left versus right, let's say, or uh, mask versus no mask, or vaccine versus no vaccine, and so on. You know, I, I don't know. Maybe there's other ways too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My my caution there is there's it's become popular for um, for people who are opposed to getting vaccinated for COVID to to uh, misappropriate my work on dehumanization. Yeah, we saw the canvas on it's doing. Yeah, they're going to yeah. be marched off to extermination camps, which is utterly ridiculous. Oh. <laughs> but, but, right, so let me, but let me address the issue. So we is a very tricky word because it might mean Americans, it might mean Americans of a certain social class, it might mean human beings generally. Mm. So in lots of the world, explicit dehumanizing talk is regarded as socially unacceptable. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that dehumanization isn't going on, but it is more subtle and it's expressed more subtly. So the things to listen to when you're wondering about whether someone is attempting to inculcate dehumanizing attitudes is the bits of their language which don't seem quite appropriate for descriptions of human beings, but would seem appropriate for descriptions of other creatures. So for instance, references to uh, refugees swarming across the border, Mm -hmm. references to places as breeding grounds for terrorism, all right, and and so on. Descriptions of... uh, people as uh, infections or carriers of disease and, and, and so on. So yes, undoubtedly. And even when, you see, here's the hard thing about this. Dehumanization happens in our heads and we're limited in, in, in how we can establish what's going on in people's heads. Yeah. The main source of information is what they say. But people can use dehumanize, uh, seemingly dehumanizing talk and not actually have dehumanizing beliefs. Mm-hmm. By the same token, they can have um, uh, dehumanizing beliefs without engaging in dehumanizing talk. So all these people who are watching the, you know, the lynching of Henry Smith, they didn't, it didn't have to be the case that they, they explicitly described Smith as a beast in order for them to be dehumanizing. So so it's a very tricky, very um, uh, context-dependent thing. Now, there are parts of the world, even, and there are parts of this country as well, demographics in this country, where explicit dehumanizing talk is used um, as, you know, applied to uh, uh, Latino immigrants, as applied to Muslims, as applied to African-Americans. And I think, I don't think that's taken seriously enough Uh, because the tendency is to think, well, these are just some nutcases who talk like that. So, but these things, 
if you get a change, if you get a relevant change in the social ecology, um, what seemed like a small and fringe thing can blow up into something very, very dangerous, very, very big. That's what happened with Nazis, right? They were a fringe, one of many extreme right-wing groups. Right. Um, so, look, I think in, in this respect, yeah. what's really, really important is to understand the circumstances that may lead us, you and me, and our friends and neighbors and whomever, to find ourselves slipping into dehumanizing ways of thinking, which is very, very, very easy. Right. Um, and one of the key things in my view is a sense of vulnerability and helplessness. Right. Right. So when propagandists of one sort or another rev up our sense of vulnerability, especially if there is real vulnerability and helplessness, like there aren't jobs and there's, there's not healthcare and, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. then you see we're very receptive to people who present themselves as saviors. And one of the gimmicks of the savior is to get us to think, to blame everything that's wrong right. with our society and with us and the world on some inferior bunch and mm -hmm. in the extreme, some subhuman bunch. And what I wanted to, um, so just as you said earlier, there are certain obstacles that you have to overcome in order to be able to dehumanize someone. Mm. What would you say maybe some obstacles someone would have to overcome in order to, well, not obstacles, maybe I'm phrasing this wrong, but what, what, what could someone do to sort of avoid slipping into dehumanistic, uh, dehumanizing. Yeah, sort of yeah. Thing. Well, that's a really good question. Part, part of it is, is a self-knowledge thing, and part of it is a political thing. Just as dehumanization straddles psychology and politics, so are the attempted safeguards. But the, it's important to say right away there's no vaccine, yeah. no guarantee. And, and, and we should really beware of imagining that we're somehow immune from, from this way of thinking. We're not. Um, so one is self-knowledge. There are the psychological um, dispositions that I've described to you yeah. here and in, in my book. Uh, if you don't recognize that they exist, you can't be vigilant about them, right? You can't catch yourself slipping into that way of thinking. It's just so easy, yeah. right? So, so I guess we call this education in self-knowledge. Right. But there's also things like education in history, right? So, and I'm talking about the history of one's own people, mm -hmm. right? If we did this stuff as we did, <laughs> and it's pretty safe bet that you, you go to any group of people and you find this because nations are born in violence and sustained in oppression. That's just mm -hmm. the sorry history of mankind. Right. right. It it inculcates a kind of humility that, oh, if we did this, we could do it again. Maybe we're doing it now. Maybe, we, you know, you can raise that kind of question. Third, of course, is, is political working to protect institutions, which provide some kind of safeguard, freedom of speech, freedom of the press and independent judiciary, things like that. None of those are foolproof. I mean, the Nazis were always complaining in the early days that their freedom of speech was being uh, suppressed. In fact, there were Hitler's, uh, sorry, uh, posters of Hitler with a, like a piece of duct tape over his mouth. He was being silenced. Um, so all those can be subverted, but that doesn't mean you're not important. And finally, the point that I, I, I just made, do, working our hardest to make sure that people feel and are, um, le they're, they're less vulnerable than they might be. They're less helpless than they might be. So the saviors are less attractive.
Right, right. And I would like to even add on to that point. Um, if we're talking about vulnerability, it seems like, so I, I don't really have any research in mind, but it seems like there's a high, a high correlation between racist attitudes and low self-esteem or low self-image. So it kind of harkens back to the James Baldwin kind of quote and perception that everything that racism is, is essentially a projection where it's sort of like the shadow self, right? This kind of like inferior beast-like person that I'm not, right? I'm the pure sort of white person. And, you know, this is like the kind of like evil kind of dirty, right, sort of uh, kind of disenchanted, uh, you know, whatever kind of adjectives you want to use, but mm -hmm. this is like the person who's the inferior, who's sort of like uh, the problem of society, and this is the person who's making my life bad, so it's not my fault that things are bad, and it's because of these beasts and we have to eradicate them, so if we're even talking about self-knowledge, and creating a culture that, let's say, reduces uh, kind of high levels of vulnerability, we also have to have to focus on people's self-image. So especially when we're talking about racism and the ideas, if I am projecting and if I am seeing you as inferior because it somehow makes me feel superior, in terms of individual psychotherapy, it would be really great to kind of set up clinics where people could be able to deal with their self-esteem in a way that helps them understand that the vulnerability isn't their fault. Maybe. Uh, maybe, but let's bear in mind uh, that the Nazis were big supporters of psychotherapy. Oh, were they? Because they hated Freud, really? Oh, they, yeah, they, of course. He was, that was Jewish therapy. Right. But they, they, they funded therapy uh, wow. extensively. There were clinics for traumatized SS men, you know, who, mm -hmm. who, who went mad committing atrocities and so on. So, you know. Um, how, did, how did it differ from psychoanalysis? There was a Nazified version of psychoanalysis. But wow. I, I don't know enough about it. I know that. So the guy in charge of a lot of this was a man named Matthias Goering. He was mm -hmm. a psychotherapist and he was a relative of Hermann Goering, mm -hmm. the head of the Luftwaffe. Um, they, they were very keen on Jungian projects wow. mm -hmm. um, and Adlerian projects. You know, they burned Freud's books. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I always had the conception that Nazis were against just therapy in general. I didn't no, know. no, no. They were big supporters. Wow. <laughs> so. wow. So, yeah, I, yeah. I wonder what that could look like, because I guess if anything, because if we have a person in authority who's, you know, obviously a trained clinician and whatever that would look like back then, then the idea is that they would sort of support some of these biases, right? And kind of establish the truth, right. right? That's yeah, right. Of course. Okay. Yeah. So, so psychotherapists are every much, every bit as much uh, hostage to these these profound biases that run through our cultures as others. Yeah, well. And it guess, actually it's a little bit dangerous because I think a lot of psychotherapists suffer from the delusion that they're free of them. Um, so uh, you're absolutely right what you said a moment ago. I we don't have time to go into it today, but I I do think that I think that racism is actually baked into the very notion of race and that races are fictional repositories of everything that one group of people hates and despises. And of right. course, those things apply largely to themselves. And one of our final questions is going to be, where do you see the trajectory going now? What, which trajectory? Well, yeah. So, yeah, so in, in terms of um, in terms of kind of cultivating the image of monsters and just racism in general, right? Um, do you feel like there's been kind of a regression? If not, let's say obviously to the extent and to the point of slavery, but do you feel like we're sort of going backwards now, especially with political polarization? Um, you know, I, I don't know if we're going backwards. I don't know if we're going forwards, but whatever, whichever of those applies, it's not like the long term. These are very brief periods of time we're considering. And I think we are faced with extraordinarily dangerous, an extraordinarily dangerous future uh, with regard to climate change and the political and social consequences of that. And I fully anticipate uh, genocidal violence on a mass scale when global climate change really, really kicks in. And that's not too long. From now, part of what inspires me to write on these topics is like I want to say, "Come on, folks, we got to get ready. We got to get ready for this." And people don't think about this aspect too much. Right. Yeah, it's hard. One hundred percent. No, this is incredibly vital work. Yeah. Um, especially these days with social media. If if you 
amass enough of a following or or gain some sort of social momentum and depending what ideas you espouse i mean that could be either as a double-edged sword but i guess as much as there is an opportunity for good there's an opportunity for evil but we're yeah. trying to get the good momentum going yeah sort of yeah. create hopefully a blend right a blend of two kind of dichotomous sides or seemingly dichotomous sides yeah, yeah you know martin luther king had the line about the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, but I think we need to add, if we push it really hard in that direction, then and don't let the pressure up. Oh, I love that. All right, Alan, wow. final questions before we go? Oh, yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, uh, where could we find you? Well, I'm on Twitter and I'm on Facebook, but the best place to go is my, is my website davidlivingstonsmith.com. There are lots of resources up there, talks that I give and uh, some writings and information about my books. Okay. What, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, <laughs> I never remember. I think it's we'll it Smith. I am. I think it is. But uh, I don't remember really. I use it, but I don't notice it. That's okay. So obviously, David, thank you for coming on. And we wish you a happy early birthday, man. Thank you so much. And thank you for... Thank you for these wonderful questions. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. And, and I'm sorry, actually, I should ask this. Uh, did, when is the book coming out Good officially? It, now it's been pushed to the 28th of October. It was going to be a little bit earlier. So uh, monst Monsters and Halloween. Perfect. Yay! Yeah. I, thought, I wonder if this was deliberate. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure it was. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's a marketing. It's sort of a good marketing. Get it. it is. Yeah. It is. How cool is that? <laughs> All right, David, we'll be in touch with you soon, man. Bye-bye. All right. That was awesome. That was awesome. Yeah, Especially for a comeback episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super cool. informative. All right, guys. If you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on uh, Twitter. Like, subscribe. Hit the bell. Hit the bell. And yeah, look forward to next week's episode.